I may not live to see the day where right. this problem is eradicated, right, right. where excessive police force is not an issue because it's it's been it's been prosecuted enough or we've done the work that we need to do to in order to right. stop that. I may not live to see the day that the entire mass incarceration system and the profiting off of, right. you know, prisoners um, or I should say um, criminal offenders, air quotes, Yep. is you know what I mean I, I may not live to see that day but I, I have to try my damnedest in this lifetime to right. do what I can that was Keith A. Wallace and you're listening to USA TBD a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today of which there are many social justice causes systemic racial oppression chief among them an outdated visionless and unsustainable foreign policy a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. My guest today is Keith A. Wallace, co-creator, writer, and performer of The Bitter Game, a powerful, multi-character, one-man show blending verse, prose, shit-talking, and basketball into a stirring commentary that begs the question, what does it mean to survive while black in America? Keith continues to perform his show across the country, including an upcoming run November 14th through 17th at the Wallace Annenberg Center for the Performing Arts in Los Angeles. He joined me in the studio here in New York. Keith, welcome. Thank welcome you. to the show. Thank you thanks for, for Thanks for coming and hanging out. Um, we're talking to Keith A. Wallace. And you, that's how you go by Keith A., right? Or you go by Keith Wallace? Uh, the A is kind of pretentious when you say it out loud, so I just go by Keith Wallace. All right, cool. <laughs> Keith Wallace. Playwright, actor, filmmaker, uh, and we'll talk about all of the above and a number of things, but certainly the, the one of the reasons why you're here and how we got to know each other was your one-man show, the Bitter Game, which I saw, I think it was early 17. I know you've been doing since 15. Mm -hmm. But but for the listeners, wow. can you just – I know, yeah. You, like when you say it like that. Sorry. <laughs> no. <laughs> can you uh, can you just kind of tell tell the listeners a little bit about, about what the show is about? Mm -hmm. um, and then obviously we can talk about the themes mm -hmm. and how, how you came to create it mm -hmm. and, and, and your vision of how you want it to kind of continue to resonate in the world. Certainly. But just kind of a beginner's guide to what the bitter game is. Uh, yeah, great. Thank you. Number one, thank you for having me. Uh, and just a little bit about the show. I mean, f for me, this show started from two places. Um, essentially, it's a it's a, a, a solo performance, one-man uh, theater show um, that really really grapples with the this issue epidemic rather of police murder here in the states and excessive force um and the the kind of deliberate targeted um you know a, aggression it seems against communities of color and poor communities um at the hands of law enforcement so that's the the kind of general uh 
sense of the show, but for me personally, the show started from two places. It started from uh, like a really, really deep um, fear and and desperation and anger. And the other side of it for me was uh, wanting to show people um, a part of my experience growing up in Philly and growing up in the inner city. And, um, and though we hear the stories about all of the undesirable things and, um, and the, the kind of bad things that happen there, there's also a lot of great and positive things. And so it became important for me, um, and my kind of own personal journey and trajectory to, to start to share a little bit of that experience as well, because I hadn't for a long time not talked about it. Um, had even been embarrassed um, and ashamed of my experience. And it took me some time to really love and accept myself and accept um, the things that I had experienced and, and, and then want to share that with the world. Got it. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, you know, in it you play, obviously, multiple characters, some, some you know, mother of the, of the main character and different, mm-hmm. different things like that. Um, but I know because uh, when I saw it, it wasn't clear to me, I think, until maybe after that it wasn't based on an actual incident. Mm-hmm. And I think, obviously, as you said, the lead up of the broader theme of this epidemic, it's mm-hmm. not a spoiler alert to mm-hmm. say that something bad happens mm-hmm. to the black man in this story. Mm-hmm. How, did you um, Were you committed to the idea of a fictional character? Did you think about some real instances? Obviously, mm-hmm. sadly, there's many to choose from. What was that process of like how you wanted to bring the story to life for you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So... Uh, the play is semi-autobiographical, so there's a lot of my own personal experience. Like a lot of the what you see happens in the main character in the story um, happened to me. Um, it's my story, um, but it became important to me to um, include in this narrative the stories of so many other people who had similar experiences and, and, and the stories of those who unfortunately met an untimely death um, because of this epidemic. And so... It's sort of a composite, the character is a composite of myself, you know, friends and family that I know, you know, talking to them about their experiences as well as pulling information and details um, straight from the headlines, you know, um, of these stories that have happened, you know, over and continue, unfortunately, that happen over and over again. Um, And there was one case in particular that um, as I was working on the play, beginning to work on the play, one case that kind of struck me um, was uh, the case of Brandon Tate Brown, who was um, a young man who was murdered by police in Philadelphia at the time that I was working on the play. Um, and it was kind of the same scenario. You know, there's always a young black guy. There's always a car involved. There's always a, a traffic stop involved. There's, you know, Brandon's story kind of followed the same trajectory that that I was creating in this play. And so... It became important to me to like, you know, from an artistic standpoint to bring myself to this piece, but also to anchor myself in something meaningful and truthful. Right. Because I feel like there is a lot of content, thankfully, being um, created and produced around issues of social justice. But I think some of the shortfalls that some of these projects might encounter is that the specificity isn't there. It becomes this kind of like innocuous, you know, uh, ambiguous kind of problem that we can't really specifically pinpoint. Like, and, 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 and from an artistic standpoint, it makes it harder for the audience to 
um, attach themselves or to invest in what's happening. Um, and so Brandon's story um, and the the journey that his mother Tanya took post his death, you know, in Philly, she became like, you know, a really, really staunch advocate for um um, against police brutality and, and, you know, and even Brandon's cousin right now in Philly is still on boots on the ground for so many different issues, not just Brandon's story, but so many other inequities as far as the judicial system is concerned. Um, and when I'm home, you know, I have a chance to engage with him and support the efforts that he has going on. So, you know, it's for me it was finding the specificity so I could write from a truthful place and perform from a truthful place, but also, um, to make it broad enough where it's like, you know, Jamel, who's the main character in the play, is kind of an everyman mm-hmm, in some right. way, right? So he feels specific because it's like that's a particular person, that's a particular person's story that we know, but also he feels broad enough where, like, we can all relate to him in some right. way, um, regardless of race, gender, you know, um, socioeconomic status, et cetera. So as I was beginning to work on the play, my um, my director and co-creator, Deborah Stein, she um, – has a tremendous amount of experience in device theater making. So the process of building the play was very interesting. We, you know, some of the, some of what is in the current script is um, direct transcripts, transcripts of um, improvisation that I did, mm-hmm. you know, in rehearsals, some of it is me, you know, going home and writing and doing rewrites and drafts. And, you know, so it's just an interesting mix. And I think it provides a, an interesting journey for the for the audience to take and right. it kind of keeps it fresh for right. me as well. And you know, obviously the backdrop against which you created the play and are have been performing the play uh is sadly, you know, uh this epidemic as you call it. What uh you know, what is what's been the response and how how have you as a as an artist as a black man creating this piece of art and we can talk about the activist mm-hmm. idea you know, how how is it, you know, what's been the response to the play and also how are you feeling about the broader issue over the course of the two plus years you've been performing it? Mm-hmm. So to, your, to the first point, the play, um, thankfully, you know, has been received pretty well. I, I should say very well. Um, and I'm grateful for that in the sense that it has shown me, number one, that the play seems to be doing something important. Um, it seems to be having an effect, the desired effect that uh, that we were hoping for. So that's encouraging and and also heartbreaking at the same time because, right. you know, the reason why the play, I think, has been successful um, and the reason why people are still interested in producing the play is because of the necessity of the conversation. So yeah. on that one hand, you're like – you know, in a perfect world, I would be kind of out of work right now because right. I wouldn't be performing this we play. We retire this play. We would retire it, you know. Um, but, you know, the other side of me, um, that kind of socially responsible side, feels like as long as this conversation is necessary and as long as people are willing to listen, you know, I need to put myself in a position to be talking and to be um, advocating um, um, around this issue. And so, so it's been received well. Um, and as far as like, you know, cause again, like you said, I've been, I've been working on this play f- at this point for the better part of, you know, two plus years. This issue has been around since before camera phones, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like if we really want to talk about like the kind of history of like 
the oppression of the black body in this country. You know, it predates any kind of like um, legalized like law enforcement um, organization in this country. But let me ask you a quick question on that. Do you think do you think that mainstream by that? I guess I mean mainstream white conventional, so to speak, America. Do you think that they they believe that there's been an uptick or do you think they believe, you know, that there's now visibility because of these technologies? Oh, so you mean like has there been a, an increase in these amount of instances? Exactly. As like, like, I, I don't have any research, but, I I, but you know, anecdotally, here's what I don't hear, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the standard white person saying to me, you know, post-Ferguson. The first thing words out of their mouth aren't things like, well, you know, this shit's been going on forever. In yeah. fact, it's probably even worse yeah. before. We but can say now, shit? You know, well, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, that, you know, that kind of comes in later where you, where you, maybe you might say to them, you might say, mm-hmm. well, it's not like this is new. Mm-hmm. I mean, thank God, quote unquote, on some level, we're getting, we're capturing these moments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, same thing with Rodney King. I mean, that was a, that was a good old fashioned on the shoulder, probably sure. a camera in a, in a, in a balcony. Mm-hmm. I was living in LA when that went down. But same thing, like, my God, how many other incidents never mm-hmm. recorded, never seen? Uh, I don't have a sense myself what mm-hmm. the answer is, mm-hmm. but I know that it's just – this is such a blind spot around race in general. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I think what, it's one of those, like, out of sight, out of mind things, right? Like, uh, when I was working on this play, first began work, working on this play, I should say, I was living in um, in San Diego, in La Jolla. You know, it was like a really, um, like, affluent um, – conservative uh, suburb right. of San Diego, which is beautiful, but, you know, kind of insular in its own way and right. sort of kind of out of touch with a lot of things. Yep. Um, and interestingly enough, the second time around when I was working on this play, because it was a commission from the La Jolla Playhouse originally for, for right. a theater festival um, back in 2015. And then they invited me back in their 2016 season to to do another version of the play where we took it um, on site to, to Southeast San Diego, which is like a predominantly black and Latino community and to fi- to figure out what that bridging those two worlds could be right. between that organization that that might not necessarily have the the kind of social capital um in that in that particular area of the city but um it wasn't until like when I was working on the second version of the play there was um Alfred Alongo was murdered in El Cajon which is like you know 20 miles outside of San Diego something like that um he was um uh, suffering from um, mental illness, um, mm-hmm. his sister called the police to try to help de-escalate the situation. They showed up and they shot him mm. in you know middle of the afternoon. So this, so I feel like San Diego, the San Diego community at large had kind of been not so on the pulse, but it was till it was literally in, in right. their backyard, yep. you know. Um, so, so all that to say. Um, when I was working on the play, began working on the play, you know, I was in San Diego and I felt very out of touch with what was happening. I felt right. really conflicted and kind of um, uh, sort of like a sellout, you know, because I was in, yeah, I was in theater school. Yeah, this nice, affluent, white, playoffs, famous, La Jolla Play famous. And is, I was in theater school. you do this play for them. Do you know what I mean? And, yeah. and, uh, people were on the front lines and tear gas and, you know what I mean, and, and millerized police state, you know, tanks rolling down sh- you know, city streets, right. and, and and here I was in theater school. I couldn't I couldn't reconcile that. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I and I had many conversations with many friends of mine, many mentors of mine. Like I'm leaving. I'm out. I have to go do something. They're like stay where you are. You have to do what you can from where you are. Right. You need to and 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 you need to develop a platform for yourself. So maybe you can speak to a larger you know um, 
um, based. Audience, so yeah. yeah. So so anyway, all that to say, I remember one day in particular, I was in um, Coronado, which is like um, kind of like a beach. You yeah, know, beautiful yeah, hotel there su- and everything. Super yeah. beautiful, whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm yeah. walking around. And I'm like, this is how it's done. This is how you can forget about what's mm-hmm. happening in the rest of the world. Right. Because you live here and you're not you're not affected by anything. Right. And it's very easy to do. If you make the decision to do so, yeah. Um, and so, so back to your original point: is there an uptick, or is there? Um, or, well, or I know you just, don't think there's an uptick. Correct. Yeah. You know, I say the thing you can ask. No. I don't say any black person, I mean, but lots of people. Yeah. yeah, the perception is that like, you know, I'm hearing a lot of like, oh, I didn't know this was happening. Right. You know, I mean, we do have the gift of this kind of like citizen surveillance now with video cameras right. and body cameras and things like that and dashboard cameras. But even those things, like you know, we we see that like in so many of these instances. There is video footage, but it doesn't most often doesn't really make a difference, you know, as far as like the judicial proceedings the legal, are. Yeah, you legal know what I mean? So, right. so so it's frustrating, you know, yeah. to have this and say, Here, look, this is what happened and it's like we'll find a way to right. negate that. Um yeah, so, it's like it produces a shock on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. It produces first the shock of of the act itself mm-hmm. and then comes the headline like five months later, you know officers not indicted mm-hmm. or this, no mm-hmm. charges. And you're like, wait, I saw that footage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was horrible what happened. And then nobody paid a price? Nobody what? paid a price. You know, and, 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 the, and the, the kind of really, I don't want to say, grotesque thing about technology and, and citizen surveillance and social media is that, like, it's at your fingertips. You can, you know, we watched... Philando Castile be murdered in cold blood on Facebook Live. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So like the the in theory what the social media platforms form was created for has now been used for this other purpose. And so it's this weird world where we have to like what, what it, like how do we how do we rectify that? I, I don't know, but but all that to say to 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 be able to put those images out into the world so people who are unawares or people who refuse to Right. Be aware, acknowledge, can now see it. Right. But at the same time, we're inundated with it every day. So it also works in the opposite direction to desensitize us in many ways. You know, I get that, especially as a black person in this country. Like, you know, I'm I'm tired of I'm growing more and more tired of people profiting off of the pain and suffrage of oppressed people right. people you know what i mean right. like it's like in and i remember when 12 years a slave came out and it was a amazing film um with some really really amazing performances and i appreciate it for so many levels it made me angry it, you know it did something to me in a vis on a visceral level um as a black person of african descent in this country but i was like my god can we is there Things have changed a little bit over the last few years, but I'm right. like, can we have an opportunity to do something on this large of a platform that's not a slave narrative? Right. That's not, you know what I mean? Like, why do we have to constantly see? Right. Even like that, um, and there was a whole conversation about, um, I forget the artist's name off the top of my head, but at the... At the, the um, You're talking about the Danish Schutz. Yeah, at the biennial of the Whitney. Yeah. And I've seen some of her work. I was in um, uh, Boston, and she there was some of her... Um, they had an exhibit on her work and that Emmett Till piece was like so kind of out of the vein of what she normally does and not that artists always have to stick to the same thing right. like it's not artists you can grow but it was just a, I thought it was a worthy conversation you know I think the people at the Whitney like you can't appease everyone but there is if, if we're going to talk about equity not just diversity because that feels like a, 
um, like a checking off a box kind of thing, but right. we want to talk about equity and diversity. Like you got to have people who are going to be able to have conversations about these things before the public, right? You know, before it's presented to the public, and so. You know, it's an interesting thing about about black pain. And, and I also feel like, you know, am I, you know, I go back and forth. I have many, many times. I don't as much anymore, but it was really hard for me when I first started performing the play because I'm like, am I doing the same thing? Am mm-hmm. I? It's like, well, first of all, the Dana Schutz painting, we could do a, we could, You could do a, like 10 podcasts sure. on that one issue alone. Sure. That was such a loaded, you know, moment from every angle about mm-hmm. artistic freedom and who can say what and which artist can yeah. do what kind of art. I mean I personally thought it was just essentially in poor taste. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought what was interesting was this idea someone I heard say was, you know, uh, the because the, it was very abstract. Mm-hmm. I mean the truth is if you didn't read the title, you never would have known what it was, mm-hmm. right? And so to take – I, I would have. Do you, do you think I, if you just saw the painting – If I saw it? With no title. I would have known. I'm, I'm, I'm going to doubt you on that. I immediately would have known. Really? Because okay. it's such an – because that for especially for I mean, I think it's a it's a, a personal thing too, but that photo and what that photo represented in the story behind it is such an iconic thing. Like I would have known immediately. Yeah. Not that everybody would. Yeah. I agree with you. There's a a, a, a huge I'd have to look at it again because mm-hmm. I went to the show and I saw it and to me it was so abstracted mm-hmm. that I, I I would question whether anyone just seeing the image mm-hmm. would even know what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, at least that was my point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, that that without someone saying, "Oh, Emmett Till," "Oh, that shot in the casket," "Oh, now I see it," mm-hmm. I think you wouldn't. To my my opinion, be you would not recognize mm-hmm. who it was without the title, which is abstracting this document of black pain, mm-hmm. so to speak. Which, in a way, you know, is it feels like another crime, ironically, to me. And you know, like you, you know, and so that I thought that was an odd choice. I mean, look. Like I said, you could do podcast after podcast about freedom mm-hmm. and it's okay to make bad art. It's okay to make mm-hmm. offensive art. I don't think we're going to go down a road where only white people can paint white people and black people because that's, yeah. that's obviously a problem. But but um, anyway, uh, yeah, that that was that, – that whole uh, – I mean I guess – well, coming back around, I heard this guy the other day on, on, a, on a radio show talk about sort of fatigue with the MLK of it all. Mm-hmm. Kind of, it's just a totally different angle than what you're talking mm-hmm. about, which is like another yet another slave movie. Even though it's hard hitting, and we still have a country that doesn't even acknowledge the true mm-hmm. nature and depth of the hor- horrifying, mm-hmm. you know, reality of what slavery was. So that would lead to the argument of saying we need more movies. People still don't fucking get it. Yeah, what happened, and you know, the legacy of it. But at the same time, there's a fatigue factor, sure. and, and and you know, so this guy was talking about how this kind of rarefied. Very specific saint-like uh, aspect of Martin Luther King Jr.'s, you know, uh, persona mm-hmm. as it's culturally understood and, mm-hmm. and and repeated, kind of in a sense uh, has been as kind of a, almost like a trap or it's a problematic dynamic as he saw it for sort yeah. of limiting the sort of uh, sort of preferred mm-hmm. way in which black activism can can express itself, Bruh, you know, et cetera. I can't. And and this and this dude was like. I think we should just take a break. Like, let's just take a couple. And and the guy was like, "How long?" He's like, 20 years." It was really funny. He mm-hmm. was he was an excellent writer. Um, Michael Denzel Smith is his name, and he had a lot made a lot of great points. But but it's connected to kind of what you're saying, mm-hmm. which is like, so I can see you'd almost feel that as the artistic creator of this great piece, The Bitter Game, it's like, okay, my next piece, you know, maybe something different. And yet, 
we're surrounded by this issue that mm-hmm. that is just not getting better mm-hmm. fast enough, mm-hmm. which sort of takes me to like, let's take it to the next broader conversation mm-hmm. for you and me to have right now, which is like, what's next? Kind of mm-hmm. what I'm trying to think about is what can we do? Mm-hmm. I had a meeting with a, with a, a, a black uh, nonprofit philanthropist guy recently, mm-hmm. a guy I just got to know. And uh, he's been in the space for over a decade mm-hmm. and, you know, been involved with Obama and all kinds of big time projects, mm-hmm. moving millions of dollars around, tremendous individual, great life story. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet it was it was like the week or two after that piece in The New York Times that talked about even black boys in affluent families mm-hmm. are still falling down mm-hmm. the ladder. I don't know if you saw it, but it was a very, you know, it was a kind of a crushing mm-hmm. study that came out. And you're like, damn, even the kids that are like, have a rich family, still wind up when they're 30 or whatever, this small percentage are actually hanging on to that social class. Mm-hmm. And he slid it across the table from me. And he's like, that came out like, you know, a week ago. Mm-hmm. And 12 years ago was this article. And he mm-hmm. had another one. It's like, it was the same fucking story. Mm-hmm. You know? And so his, mm-hmm. his point was like, you know, as much progress has been made, it still feels like incrementalism to the extreme. Absolutely. And so then the question becomes, what what needs to change? What can be done to really, as he said, move the needle? Yeah. How do you feel about that, that question? That move the needle conversation is so – I mean you just said a lot. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. Which is like I have – Remember I told you. I, to... I didn't want this to be just you talking. So I, <laughs> oh, I conversation. That. I talk way too much anyway as it is. But um, I'll work in reverse. The, the move the needle conversation is one that I feel like everybody – is wanting to have, and I've had many, many times with a lot of well-meaning white people, because like you know, there are some people who recognize the issue and they just want to help, you know. And I think there's lots of like, thankfully, you know, we have the internet, which is like a, a gift and a curse in many ways. But there's lots of research and research out there about how to make yourself useful, um, whatever your station in life is, you right. know, allyship and, and 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 what that truly means and what that looks like in an effective way. Right. Um, my uh, thought about moving the needle is yes, we all should from our station in life right now at this very moment do what we can and do the best that we can um, with those resources. You know, some some people are artists, some people are organizers, some people, you know, have other abilities and other right. um, access to other um, things that they can use to advocate for this cause. But I also believe that like we have to continue, continue, to continue to invest in youth and invest in organizations, initiatives, projects that are going to help melt away, you know, some of those lines of divisions that those barriers, because, and I think that, and I think we see that happening, you know, we see that happening with the, with the March for our lives, you know what I mean? Like, which feels like a very youth driven kind of, um, a movement, um, you know what I mean? The, the, the intersectionality that we're seeing, you know, having Black Lives Matter, you know, um, constituents um, uh, on the front lines of the Dakota Access Pipeline, you know what I mean? Like this kind right. of finding solidarity and oppression, that I think is really going to move the needle, right? Because it's a numbers game. Right. You know, at, unfortunately, at the end of the day, it's a numbers game. There's a uh, maybe a smaller group group of people in this country that have the power and that 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 continue to keep that power structure in place but if we have enough enough people aligned in the same way um looking at equity um through i don't want to say a singular lens but a more focused lens versus right. well 
this is important to this group and this is important to that group. Yeah, it's just like, you know, the analogy, the age old analogy that seems to hold true. Like there are so many let's look at like healthcare or, you know, uh, issues of health. You know, there's a initiatives for breast cancer and sickle cell mm-hmm. and HIV and and, and and leukemia and all kinds of other, you know, what I mean, and everybody has a walk. Everybody has an organization, every, right. you, but you don't you don't go to. Uh, you know, a breast cancer awareness thing and, and advocate for or, right. you know what I mean, you know, HIV yeah. research. And, you know what I mean? So everything has its place, but it's all necessary. Right. So how do we find a way to, you know, then have all those organizations go to like the healthcare industry or to big pharma and say, look, this is these are our demands right. as a collective, you right. know, and I think that kind of approach would really, really help. Um, but you do have to do what you can from your own station in life. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm an, I'm an artist. You know, I'm a generative artist and like back to this activist thing that you're talking about before I was like, it it was a phrase that I kind of like, I'm going to say I coined it because nobody was saying that shit before (laughs) before I said it. And now I've seen everywhere. I'm like, damn, I should have trademarked that. (laughs) But um, like an an illusion of the two words, actor and activist, you know, because it's what I do. Like I've always had a passion for service. I've always had a passion for um, justice. Right. Um, And and I'm an artist. And so everything that at this point in my life, personally and artistically, that I'm interested in consuming and that I'm interested in creating, mm-hmm. all has been toward justice and equality. And right. it's not just police reform. You know right. what I mean? There are many, many uh, causes that I'm passionate about right. and many, many causes that I might not be directly connected to, but I'm willing to support wholeheartedly. Right. And so right. for me, you know, I do feel like a level of social responsibility. There are some people who are creating art just to create art, which is great yeah. you know i don't feel like i can do that right now because there's right. too many other things on my head that i feel like i have to address where some people maybe living in coronado don't have those kinds of concerns right. and so they can make art for you know i'm just you know yeah just to make an example and so um so for me i think that like it is important that like we recognize that as this the this gentleman was saying like we've made progress but we haven't made as much progress as people would like to believe in the MLK thing. Like, you know, I, I have a special place in my heart for MLK. You know what I mean? He's an alumni, my undergrad, we were part of the same fraternity. Like, no. I, you know what I mean? He's like a the, giant. Did, he's, he's, he's absolutely. Amazing. You know what I mean? But in this, in the way that we needed a singular leader, um, uh, back during the civil rights era, it looks different now. Right. Black leadership is not the same monolith that it used to be. Right. You have the power to be a leader f- literally from your living room. Yeah. You know what I mean? At your fingertips. You right. know, for me, th- any kind of platform I may have, have right now started from social media. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I did like a, a performance art silent protest piece in Philadelphia that went viral that then provided other opportunities for me to continue to speak about and advocate for certain right. things. And here we are today. And so, you know, um, I, it is an interesting conversation that, like, you know, the MLK of it all, you know, because right. sometimes I feel the same way. I'm like, bro, we need, like, MLK, but we need some Malcolm in there. We need some Marcus Garvey in there. Like, we need, you know, D-Ray. All these folks who are, like, advocating, you know, from a different perspective. You right. can't just assume that there's going to be – I – even you look at Kaepernick and the and the, the kneeling, you know, right. um, national anthem protests. Like, there were so many – people up in arms about that and 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 i think he did his due diligence actually having conversations with servicemen right having conversations with lots of different folks to see if this is something that like is going to be disrespectful like what is the most respectful way that i can resist people have become so dude that whole thing i just to rant for a second sure the colin thing it's like 
I mean, when you sit back and you look at the broader picture, you say to yourself, obviously it's, it's, it's difficult when one lives in living one's life to sort of take the leap to do something that's going to sort of screw things up mm-hmm. in the short term. By that, I mean, you see where I'm going, but you look at what's going on and it's, and, and, and increasingly people like LeBron are, are, are not, are, you know, making political statements. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the power that really is actually there, what Colin did is like the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. I mean, Absolutely. all the black men leading the top sports in this country could just say, you know what? Fuck it. And I, we ain't playing no more. It would change. Right? Like, over. Oh, yeah. You know, we 82 game NBA season. Guess what? It's, it's, it's week 50, whatever. Mm-hmm. We're, on, we're on game 49 or 50, and the NFL is in the eighth week, and they all just say, you know what? Let's just take a few weeks off, mm-hmm. man. Let's take a few weeks off mm-hmm. and see what happens. Like, you know, in terms of like what what he did, I mean, there could be a hundred more times of that, mm-hmm. really. But again, mm-hmm. that's that's much easier said than done. Absolutely, right? Because you have your own personal. The way that people react, it's like, are you serious? Like, I mean, it's like the situation in this country. Like, there could be so much more of that, or there should be, or there could be to act like it's some kind of crazy out of the box thing he did. Mm-hmm. You know, I forget was it Missouri or Baylor, whichever college the football team wouldn't mm-hmm. play. I think it was Missouri, and then boom, yeah, AD and the coach were out mm-hmm. within like days. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's um, one of those things where like people have become so uh, averse to the idea of being uncomfortable. Like political resistance exists in many forms. You know, one version of it is. Protesters running out in the middle of the field and shutting down a game. Right. And another version of it is, is Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem. Um, it's like you can't be too you can't be too aggressive. It's got to be palatable enough right. for whatever constituency you know. But I, you can't tell somebody how to resist. Right. You can't tell someone how to protest. You know, the first thing that you need to do when any oppressed person or group of persons is saying to you, this is how I f-, you have to you have to start by believing them. That's the first thing. Yeah, right. You know, and um, but that's where it gets to the amnesia or the lack of sure. general awareness about the situation at hand mm-hmm. for most of the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't. People, whether it's like, oh, I didn't know this was going on with cameras capturing police violence to other aspects of our system that are not generally understood, mm-hmm. whether it's, you know, our drones blowing people up in the middle of countries all over the world, mm-hmm. how many bases we have around the country, you know, and the whole issue of patriotism is so complicated, mm-hmm. right? This this idea that, you know, to, to uh, actively express outrage or dissent against what the country's doing is unpatriotic. You know, I don't think a lot of people, when push comes to shove, truly believe that. Mm-hmm. But, and there's no question that the way that the uh, the um, aspects of sporting events have been militarized mm-hmm. very much in a, a huge increase since 9/11. Mm-hmm. I mean, now now it's not take me out of the ballpark; it's mm-hmm. take me out of the ballpark and America the Beautiful mm-hmm. in the seventh inning stretch. Mm-hmm. Now the level of of mm-hmm. militaristic, patriotic, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Uh, and then they say, can we just separate activities. sports and politics? Yeah. It's like, no, but it's not. It's, inher- it's inherent in it. Yeah. You know what I mean? We just have some major blind spots. When you're sitting there at the Super Bowl and a cool moment is that a bomber flies over, a stealth mm-hmm. bomber mm-hmm. flies over. You're mm-hmm. like, wait a minute. Yeah. Why are we celebrating a machine, a giant machine of death? A killing machine. Which, which, you know, okay, there are quote unquote justifiable moments, but for the most part, mm-hmm. it's bad. Mm-hmm. And we're celebrating this, you know, incredible – $2 billion death machine flying over us and cheering like it's just 
That's how you sell the it's lie, really, though. It's, right? it's, it's messed up, man. Yeah. But and I'm and I'm older than you, so I'm a little more cynical. Like I, I come out of that conversation with that with that nonprofit, you know, philanthropist guy, and talk about this incrementalism, and you talk about the numbers game. We can all say the demographics mm-hmm. will, you know, ultimately. But mm-hmm. number one, that's a decades long, multi decade long path. Mm-hmm. If it's like, well, it'll just work itself out. And mm-hmm. the second thing is, there are plenty of societies all over the world where the majority of the people mm-hmm. are still under the thumb of a few. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's not like the system's going to just let go very easily. Absolutely. You know, so um, I'm, I'm, you know, on the one hand, you know, there are days when I can feel uh, inspired by the activities of people all over the world and and the power of social media to Mm -hmm. spread messages and to get information out there. But at the same time, um, you know, it, sometimes I can be very, uh, I can feel very um, cynical about the rate of change, you know, that's going to come and how, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting with the Parkland kids, and I went down to the D.C. with my with my two daughters, and I thought they did a really good job, as you mentioned, the intersectionality of it, because mm-hmm. it was, you know, it was not necessarily about gun violence in the inner city. Mm-hmm. And they, I don't know if you saw or you know if you were mm-hmm. there or you, or you watched it, but I was there for the whole thing, and they really went back and forth between kids from Chicago talking about the issue and mm-hmm. a young girl from East L.A. Mm-hmm. And it was this interesting moment of, of watching, going, good on them mm-hmm. for being open and saying, okay, mm-hmm. this is not a suburban white kid violence mm-hmm. issue. This is a broader issue. But at the same time, as you saw them doing that, you're like, yeah, they had to be thoughtful that way. Absolutely. Oh, they are on Time Magazine mm-hmm. because of who they are. Mm-hmm. And this is more of a, you know. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, good that they brought those kids in Absolutely. to broaden it, but ouch, that they had to because mm-hmm. we didn't have a march for them. Sure. We didn't have a march after Michael Brown in D.C. that had all this press coverage and all these people. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that march. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you, you know, for me, so it cuts both ways. It it does, and and I'm like, I've been in the position of like, look, that's what allyship really is. You know what I'm saying? Like, we should be having a march for like all the gun violence that's happening in Chicago, but we don't. But when a you know, there's a bunch of, um, you know, high school students in like a suburban white area get you know, or or if we think about Sandy Hook, well, I mean, I, I, the, the whole thing should have been changed. You know, yeah, one would think it's just insane, but obviously, but yeah. um, but if that's what it takes, right? If, not if that's what it takes, but if if it if it if it takes that kind of um, allyship to say this is affecting because that's what it. I mean, like, look, somebody was asking me. Oh, I did a, um, a Skype session with um, some students at Arizona State the other day, and one of the students was asking, like, what, what do you think? She's asking about whose responsibility is it to talk to the like white people, and I was like, "It's other white people's responsibility." Yeah. Like you know what I mean? I've done it. You know what right. I mean? And I will still do it if a person is will. Like they got to come to the table with something. I can't. Right. I can't do allyship, black oppression, one hundred and one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. I can't. I can't do that. But I will have. I will engage. It should be a required course. Bro. <laughs> I will have conversations, but you know, white people will we're, we're listen and respond to other white people, yeah. especially the one like you know. What's the whole like marketing business? Like the idea of like people who buy in early, like like uh, early adopters, early adopters, and then the folks who like who who will like, kind of go either way. Like Malcolm Gladwell tipping point. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yeah. I'm on that kind of thing. Right, so right. it's like, I, let me get the. There's like a small percentage, just maybe like a thirty percent something people that are gonna like late buy in late or right. or not buy in at all. Whatever, right. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna waste my time on those people no. i'm gonna let 
white people yeah. talk to those white people. Yeah. And I'm going to talk to other people who like, it's just a smarter way to operate. Right. You know what I mean? And you talk about moving the needle and, and all these things. Like, I think for me, I've accepted like, you know, that, that kind of iconic MLK, like I might not get to the mountaintop. Like he knew, right. he right. knew that, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think I've accepted that I'm, I may not live to see the day where right. this problem is eradicated right, right. where excessive police force is not an issue because it's it's been it's been prosecuted enough or we've done the work that we need to do to in order to right. stop that i mean i live to see the day that the entire mass incarceration system and the profiting off of right. you know prisoners um or i should say um criminal offenders air quotes yeah is you know what i mean I, I may not live to see that day but i, I have to try my damnedest in this lifetime to right. do what i can right and to leave a, a mantle for someone to pick up because that I'm standing on the shoulders of so many people right. who have worked and done those, right. and done that work. And I would not be in the position that I'm in now just as in society. You know, I've, I've had a chance to like – I grew up in inner city, but I had a chance to go away to school, travel abroad, see the right. world, have different experience, occupy different spaces. You know what I mean? Like occupy spaces that are – predominantly white spaces right. um, and to be able to have certain kinds of conversations. And, and and because of the work that was done in the 50s and 60s, right. I was able to, to do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was able to go and get an education. I was able to, I'm able to vote. I'm able to do all these things because right. somebody, you know what I mean, that was either 20 or 85 yeah. years old right. fought and did something. Mm-hmm. They did something. Absolutely. And so it's our responsibility to do that. You know what I mean? Like, Rome wasn't built in a day, neither was America. You no. know what I mean? It took a long time and a lot of systemic oppression for the country to be built into what it is now. And it's not going to – there is no, you know, two-year yeah. fix plan to it. You know what I mean? Like it's just it's a right. steadfastness, a resoluteness. But to your point about that systemic multi-century-long uh-huh. process, I think that's that's – it's not just some white people that need to – Make be involved in making the change. It's mm-hmm. a shit ton. Yeah, because you know that's been the majority. That's where the the system has evolved from. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms of who, you know, came to this country, mm-hmm. you know, did what they did to the indigenous mm-hmm. population, brought in the mm-hmm. you know the slave population, ran these ran this business, so mm-hmm. to speak, for for a long time, and then it perpetuated with Jim Crow, etc. I mean, we know all mm-hmm. of the drill, but mm-hmm. you know, I think. Uh, it it would be naive to think that uh, you would not need a significant amount of people who are a part of that system. Yes, Absolutely. okay, they didn't build it. We're not talking about visiting the sins of the father on sure. the sons and daughters. Um, if you if you grow up white in America today, you're not by definition a racist, or it's you know you you have this problem. But if you don't learn about how we got today, you don't recognize mm-hmm. all the white privilege, the fact that you know the way you move through the world, all the mm-hmm. advantages and all the inequities you know that have been continued to this day. You know, you're just going to need a lot of people to really get that mm-hmm. and, and start to, to make a mm-hmm. change and be intentional about it, I feel, like, to move the needle. I mean, mm-hmm. history's speeding up. Maybe things will happen faster in yeah. our lifetimes than yeah. before. Yeah. Um, I think it has. I yeah, think it that's has. Probably you know? That's probably true. That's probably true. That's and, undeniably true. Yes. Yeah. And to, and to that point, I think, you know, when you think about what kind of – resistance or protest or what have you is necessary in today's age. I think it's a mixture of what we've seen in the past and thinking about new and innovative ways to do so. You know what I mean? Like we've had conversations about like 
how can technology and VR and augment, augmented reality be a part of this conversation as right. well? Like, you know, I mean, there, there, nothing tops a good old fashioned petition. Uh, you know, I mean, rally, protest, showing up in numbers by yep. four, like, like that gets attention. That gets people's attention. It gets people scared. You know, the thing about, I get white privilege. I get, I get it. I understand it. Who wants to, <laughs> who would want their power structure, right. whether they are consciously or subconsciously exactly. participating in it right. or consciously or subconsciously perpetuating it, who would want their power right. taken away from them? Especially if it's like, I'm a good person. I pay yeah. my taxes. I don't do anything bad to anybody. Why Why right. am I being attacked? You know what I mean? But you have to have a, a mind toward equity. And it takes courageous people to have those kind of conversations, right? To understand that like, to people who don't live in a scarcity mentality equality is not about taking from those who have it's about making the situation equitable for everybody right right? like if we all were thinking about how can we everybody deserves a piece of the pie right you know what i'm saying fairness a fair share of whatever the thing is and so um so i don't know i mean i think we are living in a time where it's just an interesting, like youth um, have so much more autonomy and agency right. to create change than ever before. So true. Than ever before. We don't have to wait for somebody right. to give us permission to do in the way that like, you know, we needed an MLK. We needed right. a singular yeah. person that was that could rally the troops because for many different reasons we just needed that. But we have so many examples now. You right. know, and, and, right. and we can talk about representation and what that looks like, you know what I mean? That's still not a level playing field, but no, there's more than there's stretch. ever been. Right. You know, yeah. and, and, and you can take and glean from a lot of different things and right. so I think it's I think it is an exciting time and, 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 and I, I have come to the resolution that, you know, I may or may not see like this right utopian, you know, kind of this whatever. End point. But but I'm happy in the work that I'm doing and I feel fortunate because the universe is aligning me with other people who have the same passion. Right for equity. And, That's good. Um, You're making me feel more optimistic right come now. Come on, man. You know, <laughs> yeah. Even this podcast, you don't know who's yeah, going to yeah, listen yeah. to it's this true. and be inspired. It's true. You know, we, we, I've learned with, um, especially the arts or anything kind of art related because I see this as kind of an art form as well. Right. You know what I mean? This kind of dialogue, um, it has the power to change people and it has the power to level the playing field. Right. Right. Like you can take mostly anybody from anywhere from any experience and if you put them in a performance situation they might cry or laugh or scoff or grimace at the same thing you know what i mean we're all equal here in this space you know if we can get now you got to get people to that space i defy anyone (laughs) to want to sit through your show and not be moved and you know uh have their heart and their mind opened up Thank to you. a point of view they may not have had. And that's I think so that's, kind. Thank you. But I think that speaks to your point, right? Which yeah. is which is why storytelling. Mm-hmm. We are I was at a conference and this guy was talking about how if you if you told an alien that humans when they finish like doing their day, whatever it is, like out planting food or making shit or whatever we do to survive mm-hmm. And we come home and the way we unwind is by listening to made up stories or telling them to each other. It would sound absurd, right? Wow. Why why would just 
Why, why does that sound like a coping mechanism versus like eating, sleep? Mm-hmm. But we are obsessed with stories. They def- we, we, we all believe we live in our own stories. That's we think super about dope. I never way. thought about that. And so you're like, yeah, why are stories so important? But they have been forever. Absolutely. It's how we, how, we tra- you know, how, we, how we carried information from one generation to the next when we were oral only and, and now in books and movies. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I think you're right. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. Mm-hmm. Um, now, having said all that, you know, um, repressive regimes, bad actors in history can just kind of wipe out the artistic ecosystem because it's scary, you know. Pretty and you know, and, and you don't have the freedom of expression you have in many countries. So we had an you know. attack on the art, the um, National Endowment for the Arts here with under this new presidency. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's a calculated, yeah, very deliberate, right? Um, kind of like from all sides, you know, strategy to mm-hmm. to control, right? You know, mass right. opinion. Um, but uh, but if you look throughout history, any kind of pivotal, like societal movement or change, like it, it uh, an artistic something runs alongside it. Right, it absolutely does. You yep. know what I mean? Like even in this country alone, you can look less like look back as recent as the civil rights movement. There's so many artists, music, actors, so many, so much content artistically right. that contributed to that movement. It's just something that we connect to. Yeah. And I think I've been lucky enough because I didn't know, you know, that there was a world where my artistic self and my kind of socially minded, socially right. conscious self could be married and, and, and work together to create something. Like that's not something that they necessarily teach you in drama school, especially yeah. like um, in, at an undergraduate level. You know, there are a few – I've identified a few programs around the country, maybe like it was an American Theater Mag, um, like 12 programs that have like a – dedicated like philosophy toward like creating art for social change right but not very many in the country and yeah, so it's funny you, you mentioned that because you know it, it's been interesting how for me as just a a quote-unquote consumer of content mm-hmm. i've felt my headspace shift a bit since yeah the election but i didn't want to focus on the election mm-hmm. per se because you know it's not like the government was working very well before sure. that. and there are reasons why sure Congress wouldn't wouldn't try to get anything done for for Obama, but it's not like even pre Obama, post Obama, our political structure is pretty effed up mm-hmm. in the United States. And uh, but there's no question, at least for me, that you know, not that all art has to have something to say about mm-hmm. the state of the world, but mm-hmm. I I have felt as a consumer of art yeah. more of a of a of a desire to yeah. get that, and then other things that are a little more frivolous. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time enjoying that as yeah. much because yeah. it's just kind of not on point yeah. about anything, yeah. you know, and yeah. uh, which is really not necessarily fair because, yeah. you know, just because we have struggles, you know, that, and things that in the world need to get better and things need to be critiqued mm-hmm. and, and exposed doesn't mean we don't need to just have a good laugh mm-hmm. at, you know, a funny joke mm-hmm. about, you know, about something. Um, but it is interesting how it feels a little more charged mm-hmm. and um, I'm finding myself drawn more toward mm-hmm. – Content that mm-hmm. it has something to say mm-hmm. um, than stuff that's a little more light, a little yeah. more you know. That's just kind of that's just my personal feeling at the moment. We're on the same um, page in regards you know. to that, I, you know. And I do think that, like you know, my God, sometimes we do need to just laugh. I wish I laughed more, <laughs> um, but you know, it's it's a particular moment in time. Five years from now, five years ago, I wasn't working in this vein. Right. You know, five years from now, maybe I'll be doing something different. I, I feel like once you know you, once you kind of, 
you can't turn your back on something right. like, but you know, but maybe I'll ship, you know, cause there, cause there's a, a lot of content that doesn't in a really smart way that like, you know, like you look at some of these like p- political commentary shows, like, you know, somebody who does it really well, Trevor Noah, you know what I mean? Right. Like it's funny, but it's hard hitting yeah. because it's the truth. And, and the satirical kind of nature of it and the ironic nature of it is like, we have to laugh at it because it's so ridiculous, but it makes you think, but you enjoy right. watching it. You know, that's what I try to capture with the show too, right? Like there's equal parts, like kind of devastation and, and tragedy, but there's some joy and, and, and revelry and celebration too, right? Because right. that's what life is. And, and it's important to recognize that and, and to invite all of those things. But, um, but yeah, you know, I, I, I agree with you. Like, have something to say at least right, right yeah so you know i know you're you're thinking about you're continuing to perform the bitter game from mm-hmm. time to time um and i know it's important for you to to connect dialogue and conversation around the work mm-hmm. um not just it's just like something that someone sees and that's it mm-hmm. either you're doing it actually when you perform it after mm-hmm. whatever you've thought about and you've mentioned me the idea of a curriculum mindset just talk a little bit about some ideas or feelings you have about about the future of that piece, certainly uh, either that piece or or creating work that that in ways that can be you know resonate with an yeah. audience. No, that's super important. Thank you. Uh, I think ultimately the idea of accessibility is important to me. Right, like um, who are you speaking to, and how are those people going to see this piece? Um, and in the same vein as accessibility, what does it mean to get people from different backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, regions? You know, how do we get those people in the same room, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's how you really get ideas from right. and ideas generated. And so, um, this kind of idea of audience engagement is super important to me. It's, it's in fact, it is a part of the work. Like you, you can't do the show without this other part. You know what I mean? Right. And and as the creator of the piece, I have the the ability to be able to say to be able to say that um which in my in in some subtle way is a part of my artistic like resistance you know what i mean like it 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 so it so it's working on multi fronts but um this piece in particular the bitter game um i i i would love in a perfect world to for the play to be able to continue to be performed, not necessarily with me as the performer, right? You know, it's, it's I think it's time to release the reins and let some other people yeah. have a um, have the ability to share this story with their communities where I can't go or where yep. I, you know I can't be. That'd be great. Um, so you know, so continue it in its theatrical form. Um, it started off as a site specific piece of theater, so I would love to like find more opportunities to take it into unconventional theater spaces in communities on basketball courts in, mm-hmm. in community centers, so forth and so on, so that that accessible that barrier of accessibility is taken away. Um, the idea of curriculum that you talked about, like creating some kind of curriculum that will go into high schools and maybe um, um, colleges um preceding performances of the play so there's some kind of like rich dialogue that's happening about the issues that the play addresses before the performance and then following the performance it 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 provides for a more robust kind of conversation um what is in in that ideal state which i know i've talked to you about where Mm -hmm. we actually teach the history of black oppression and slavery in the united states Mm -hmm. like we make the germans teach about the nazi Mm -hmm. era where like kids in junior high school and high school spend an entire year Mm -hmm. on the subject Mm -hmm. your play will be like Part of like month number five of Man, eight, right? Like I there'll would, be a whole artistic section because we're going to spend a hundred more, 
you know, a t- percent time on this topic than we yeah. do actually, instead of just a couple of chapters in a book, yeah. just blow past it. It's really, I mean, I, that, I would that's be, a tangent, but you made me think about that. No. I was like, yeah, if, if we actually taught this history properly, mm-hmm. um, I'm actually reading this book, uh, the, the, um, the half never told. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an incredible story mm-hmm. about about the history of, of slavery per se. You just mm-hmm. read it and you're like, God, this should be required reading for everybody. And mm-hmm. you know, so in the day, maybe when we do actually teach it properly mm-hmm. and in depth and let it breathe, then uh, you know, the bitter game will be a maybe be a part of it, just like we all read the Scarlet Letter growing up. Oh my God, man. <laughs> From your lips to God's ears, man, I that would be an amazing thing, you know, to to have to have created something that 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 would have that kind of impact, that kind of resonance, you know, would be would be amazing. Um, and then another thing is, you know, how how do we start to bridge the gap between community and police relations? You know, is yeah. this play something that can bring those two worlds together? Mm-hmm. Is this something that can be used as a model for cultural sensitivity right. training for officers, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, and then, you know, of course, I think a natural kind of um, next step or trajectory would be putting it on film that way it's right. it's, it's you know go global it, be seen by the widest audience possible it can be seen by possible. the widest audience possible and then it and it's it it becomes an indelible mark in yeah. history and you can always throw back to it you know what i mean um yeah. big dreams big goals those are good dreams well, it's, it's an incredible work and you should be very proud of thank it thank you it's, my friend. Uh, it's awesome thank you and uh thanks for spending time with me today it was a pleasure okay thanks Quick correction, the title of that book, The Half Has Never Been Told by Edward Baptiste. I sort of butchered it. Incredible book and a man I hope to have on the show in the future. I want to thank again my guest, Keith A. Wallace. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA TBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Brazell. We'll see you next time.